It is my distinct privilege today to welcome Dr. Claire Craig. She's a pathologist. She has a book. It's called Expired, COVID, The Untold Story. She has an extensive, there it is right there, a background uh, working as a pathologist and a researcher. She was at Cambridge and then Oxford. Uh, been with the NHS for a long time, and she has now moved to the 100,000 Genomes Project and more recently to the Heart Health Advisory and Recovery Team, Health, excuse me, heartgroup.org, I think is where you can get through to that. I just signed up for that myself. Uh, I don't know if you all caught her on John Campbell's uh, web, webcast, uh, but uh, I found her testimony there extraordinarily compelling, and I thought I must get my hands on Dr. Craig, which we have done, and I look forward to talking to her after this. Our laws as it pertain to substances are draconian and bizarre. The psychopaths start this way. He was an alcoholic. Because of social media and pornography, PTSD, love addiction, fentanyl and heroin, ridiculous I'm a, I'm a doctor for <laughs> sake. Where the hell do you think I learned that? I'm just saying, you go to treatment before you kill people. I am a clinician. I observe things about these chemicals. Let's just deal with what's real. We used to get these calls on Loveline all the time. Educate adolescents and to prevent and to treat. If you have trouble, you can't stop and you want to help stop it, I can help. I got a lot to say. I got a lot more to say. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Ladies and gentlemen, it is the holiday season and our friends at GenuCell Skincare want to give you the gift of younger looking skin with their best sale of the year. For the first time ever, get over 60% off our favorite skincare bundles at GenuCell.com slash Drew. GenuCell has so many products that Susan and I love. GenuCell's XV Moisturizer. It locks in moisture, making dry spots a thing of the past. It's especially great with the colder weather coming in. And with its immediate effects... Two, you can see these results in as little as 12 hours, guaranteed, or your money back. Susan loves GenuCell's Vitamin C Serum and the new Deep Correcting Serum with Lactic Acid. It hydrates your skin while preventing future wrinkles from developing. Take advantage of this amazing holiday savings by going to GenuCell.com and getting over 60% off right now. Plus, all orders are upgraded to free shipping for the rest of the holiday season. Use code DREW at checkout for an extra 10% off your entire order. That's genucel.com slash Drew, G-E-N-U-C-E-L dot com slash D-R-E-W. I'm very excited to get into it with our next guest. Let's bring her right in here. She's very kindly agreed to join us at uh, 11 o'clock at night uh, in United Kingdom time. Uh, Dr. Craig, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you ever so much for the invite. Really good to be. So let's just walk people through a, sort of a little history, if you don't mind, uh, what you were doing professionally at the time when COVID hit, what you saw evolving, what you thought at the time, and when you threw the penalty flag. <laughs> Some, something's not right. <laughs> um, sure. So I'm a, I'm a doctor and I was um, a diagnostician working in the labs doing testing of various different types, cancer specialist really. 
And um, I ended up working for the 100,000 Genomes Project on the cancer arm. So I was doing sort of centralised diagnostics and working alongside public health. I went actually for a bit into AI cancer diagnostics. But from May 2020, um, I was um, homeschooling for children in lockdown. That, that's what I was really doing. And we started to get increasingly concerned about how the testing was being run because this was my area of expertise and I could see that it was being done in a illogical manner. And that was really my, my only worry at the time. And I waited till the kids went back to school in September and then had a chance to dig into the data. So I looked at the data and decided, used it to see if I could, first of all, showed that there was a problem I was concerned about, about too many tests coming back positive. And then secondly, to show that the people who were testing positive in the summer didn't have the same characteristics as those who had been hospitalised and dying in the spring. So hospitalised and dying people in the spring were more likely to be black, they were more likely to be hypertensive and diabetic, and there's all sorts of characteristics of a COVID patient. And in the summertime, those characteristics were lost and so that showed that the testing had gone wrong. We started just giving out random positives. And so I thought, what do I do with this information? You know, I, I feel like it's important to say something, but I don't really want to put myself out there. But I was persuaded to put my photo up, put my name up and call it out. And I was so naive. I honestly expected one of two responses. Either they would say, oh, no, you're wrong because of X, Y and Z. We've already looked at this. Or they would say, oh, yeah, OK, we hadn't realised that. We'll correct it. And that that would be that. And what actually happened was I got attacked, um, you know, not in the real world, just on online. Um, and then lots of other professionals who had had concerns in their field contact contacted me and sort of, you know, reached out in a supportive way, but also to say that they'd had this concern or that concern. And I was left sort of slightly lost thinking, well, how do I tell if these people are uh, genuine and if they're telling the truth or if they're just outliers and they're slightly odd so I had to sort of go back to first principles and work through all of the things they were saying and gradually learn more and more and, um, and felt like I had to speak about those things as well as the, as the things that I was an expert in and um, ended up setting up this heart group um, in January of 2020. Okay, well, hold on, hold on. You've, 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 you've leapt through quite a bit of material there. I want, I want to tease out some of this stuff. First of all, you said that they were reporting random positives. Explain to people why the initial risk factors for alpha and delta COVID, and particularly COVID that you would test for, I'm assuming people that are sick, suddenly broke down. What, what, did, what was your insight in that? Okay, so... Medical testing, um, people put a lot of faith into, but it's not perfect. If it was perfect, you wouldn't need doctors and you wouldn't need testing specialists because you could just go and get tested and you know what was wrong. And the key to getting mm -hmm. a test right is, first of all, testing the right people. Okay, so you, if you go and take, say, a prostate cancer test and you test it on schoolboys, then any positives you get back you'll know we're just testing errors because they're too young for prostate cancer. Whereas in an older population, right. you know, it has a different meaning. So you have to be very wary of who you're testing in the first place. Right. And so, then, so it's what it's the way the way we talk about it is that that's the the probability of a positive test impacts the accuracy of the test, which people don't appreciate. But that is absolutely yeah. the truth. Correct? Yeah. 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 Keep, going. Um, Keep going. And then with every test, 
you have a choice between do you want to find every single possible case or do you want to find only the definite cases? And there's an overlap and there's like a gray area in the middle. So in the, in the book, I describe this talking about dogs and say, okay, let's imagine you had a test and it was a simple test of the height of a dog and you want to find the Great Danes. So you could put the height really high and you would only find Great Danes, but there'd be some Great Danes that you would miss because they were shorter, or you put it really low when you find all the Great Danes, but you've got a whole load of other big dogs that you've caught up in that test result as well. So it's always a balance between right. one and the other. And, and, and that's what we're, we're trained to understand as we're trained to understand as the sensitivity and the specificity of the test, correct? Right, exactly that. Yeah. And at the beginning right. of a an outbreak of an infectious disease, the concern is that you rapidly roll out a test. First of all, you want something that's available as quickly as possible, and that it, it's very sensitive. You want to find any possible problem. And then the idea is that over time you can refine it. So I, you know, I kind of I understand why you would start with the PCR test. The labs are all ready to do that. You just swap in and out what you're testing for. You can rapidly upscale it. And I can have some sympathy with the fact that when it was set up, it was set up to be very, very sensitive. But you can't mm -hmm. keep testing like that over the long term because the, it, it was so sensitive the way they set it up that a sample that had only three or four viral particles in it, which is enough, like which you could find in a single aerosol in the air, that would be enough to call a positive, which means that people who are breathing contaminated air could test positive, even when they're completely healthy. It means people who've breathed in virus and their immune system's dealing with it and they will never be infectious to other people and they will never get a symptom will test positive. And so the test, the positive results had no clinical meaning because from a clinical point of view, you want to know one of two things. You have either the question of, here's this sick person coming into hospital and we want to know why they're sick. And you have a separate question of, well, you know, we've got people who are contacts, we want to know if they're infectious. And, and the way it was set up wasn't, wasn't right for either of those questions. It was set up to find anything and everything. And that it was so sensitive that the problem you'd have would be in an intensive care unit where the air has got virus in it, inevitably, because some of the patients will be sick, and other patients who are breathing that air are going to test positive. And when you've got patients who are dying, when we're dying, our immune systems are not as good as they normally are at fighting off viruses. And if you're testing like crazy, you might find virus in people who are dying that that wasn't really the cause of their death. That wasn't really a problem for them at the time. It was just that their their immune system's not working properly, and so that any you could find anything. And, and there was and at the time, I do remember there being some conversation about this. The sort of the this concentration of PCR, sort of people. You know, we started discussing it. It, it was dismissed out of hand. I mean, nobody took that conversation seriously at the time. Did did were you eventually listened to as someone who comes from the public health, the NHS, from this department? In it literally, is your expertise, and no one's listening. Uh, no, so no, nobody listened to me. But moreover, in that country, <sighs> we've got a, a national body who are charged with screening testing so that they are responsible for the ethics and the rollout and the you know the running of mass screening programs 
and they were not consulted at any point. They were just completely kept at arm's length from the whole setup because they'd be saying the same thing that I'm saying. You know, they, they, it was done yeah. in the wrong way. It was done to magnify positive test results. Like you wouldn't have done anything differently if you wanted more right. positive test results. Right, of course. All right, and so there we are with that issue, which was the testing. Uh, and so you immediately knew something was um, not right. Uh, interesting, it's so interesting to me that there's sort of three, there, there are two aspects to abandonment of our usual concern about sensitivity and specificity uh, echoed in our abandonment of our risk-reward uh, sort of analysis of every therapeutic, whether it's pharmacological or non-pharmacological intervention we did, we abandoned risk-reward analysis. And there was a similar kind of lack of willingness to go back and refine the testing and the production of the vaccine. So there's th there were three incarnations of this same hysteria and complete abandonment of our normal practices as physicians. I, so I would ask you, that it's kind of leaping ahead again, but my question would be, do you agree that there are echoes of the same phenomenon here, just in a different context? And B, what the hell happened to us? What happened to us? How, how did this, and, and, then, and then it persists. I completely agree. And I think the whole thing could be seen as the failure of checks and balances and the failure of feedback loops. And so, you know, we have all sorts of, of things in place within medicine, within science, and also within politics in the sort of public debate that allow for correction of error. And, and that extends to, you know, the media, the political opposition. You've got just free speech and debate in the, in the public domain. Um, and then, you know, within science, you've got the journals, you've got um, people just speaking freely. And all of these things were broken. But they were deliberately broken. A lot of them. They, 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 the censorship was was deliberate, and the the way the politics was set up has was deliberate. And it's the same in every single country. It's not like you know some of them got it right. It was well. Exactly let's the stop same. with that. Let's start. You're you're saying something that you now. I want I want to drill into that because at first you were sort of describing what happened. Right? It was broken. The, yes. It and and then you're saying, oh wait a minute, it was broken by a deliberate process. I'd love to know what, what the heck was going on, really the sort of source material on that, because I understand there were a lot of people hysterical doing what they thought was best and deliberately broke a lot of things because they were... Uh, I've, I've started to see the world as dumb and smart and because and it's gotten too complicated, because they were dumb. Uh, <laughs> but, but it was throughout the world that's the part to me, I get how my country gets dumb and maybe you can understand how UK can be dumb because we do dumb stuff over here. But how did the world sign up for this? And, and do you agree with me that that's a viable question about this? And do you agree with me it was just dumb? Uh, yeah, I agree with you on both. And I think, you know, part of, it, part of it is that we are so connected as a world now. And so, you know, social media does have that effect that it does have a global reach. So I think part of it is that mm. part of it, I mean, part of it, when I'm saying that there, it was, it was actively, so there was active censorship, there was active 
rules and legislation put in place that made it very hard for people in the media to do their jobs. They couldn't hold people to account the way they normally would. And so then the question becomes, well, why did that happen? And I think, you know, you're sort of touching on the, this idea that it, it could have come from fear in those people who are putting those things in place because they felt like it was the right thing to do. And obviously it could also come from malice. And and I've kind of, you know, balanced, sort of toyed with these ideas all, all of this time, how much of it was competence, how much of it was, you know, well, there's obviously there's, there's, there's arguments for both. And I kind of have come to the conclusion that for now, the question I'm really interested in is what got everyone else to go along with it, right? Because you can have bad things happen or bad people try yes. and do bad yeah. things, but you have to have the yeah. consent to go yeah. along with it. And I yeah. think that's so, so that's really question. interesting. Yeah. So I, I have arrived in a, I, I'm still not sure what happened, I, particularly you know, what happened to our profession. That It was just startling to me what, what happened to us. But, but it continues to happen to us, frankly. We're still in this weird state where you can't have reasonable conversation with our peers. It's very odd. Um, but <laughs> I've kind of arrived at the same place where I become a bit of a student of history uh, all of a sudden. I find myself reading about early 20th century Russia and 1790 France and uh, in places where mobs have got going. Uh, when, when the mob is uh, afoot, uh, I'm reading about it now. Uh, and uh, much to my, I guess, surprise and dismay, lo and behold, these are not such common things throughout the historical sweep, even though in our lifetime we've not really been exposed to it. We sort, I think we thought we sort of concluded it with the Second World War, you know. Um, but no, lo and behold, this seems to be a feature of humanity and, and societies, at least in their current uh, frame. What are you thinking? Um, absolutely. And, and that is a very, very frightening aspect of it, because when you look at it with a, through a historical lens, you realize that it's innately human and that, and that you know, a lot of it's to do with fear. It, fear is incredibly powerful and gets people to, um, it, it captivates people and it keeps them going for years in a state of irrational thought. Um, and obviously, when other people are surrounded by other people who are fearful, that becomes almost contagious. And, you know, there's all sorts of examples that we can pull out the Spanish Inquisition or the Salem witch trials. You know, there's all sorts of examples of, of hysteria where often in those examples, the solution came from outside. You know, there were little pockets of problems going on in the world and an external force was what resolved it, which, of course, this time around... We haven't got that. You know, the whole world is swept up in this. And so it has to sort of come from, this has to come bottom up, I think. And I think it is coming bottom up. I'm kind of optimistic compared to where I was. Mm. Why? Well, I think that um, people are starting to talk. They're starting to speak. I feel like the, mm. the fear has subsided in more and more people and they're, wondering what just happened, you know? And I think there's also mm. something mm. where by, with, there's been a lot of hyperbole and there's been hyperbole on both sides. And I think yes, that people sure. are getting sick of hyperbole on both sides and wanting to try and understand where the nuance lies. And so once we're at that point, we can start to have grown-up conversations again, I hope. I, you you dropped in. I hope on the heels of that is is it is are you finding are you finding it uh, 
more so. Again, I, I worry, I, I'm so, you know, I've lived my life identifying with this profession. I, I was shocked at the way my peers behaved from the moment this thing started. Uh, and I continue to be shocked at some of the continued, um, the aggressiveness, the lack of collegiality, the the what a friend uh, somebody I interviewed named Joseph Fryman called the irrational certitude i mean we are trained to be rationally uncertain at all times to be constantly be skeptical and particularly questioning ourselves and our sense of the ascension to the truth through uh, evidence based experimentation but there is all this crazy irrational certitude still amongst our peers uh, what do we do with that so I, I, I think this is the hardest challenge. I really do think the, med the medics are going to be the last to wake up, I think. Great. And I think it's because, I know, I know. I think it's because, <laughs> um, understandably, doctors outsource some of their thinking. I mean, we all outsource some of that, our thinking. You know, we all rely on different experts to help us understand the world in different ways. And doctors have mm -hmm. a lot of knowledge that they have to keep up to date with. And so they have yes. sources that they turn to to help them yes. with that. And, and authorities. And we, we turn to authorities. Yeah. yeah. And, yeah. and if we come along and pull that rug out from underneath them, they're left with so much work to do. Now, that was true at the beginning yes. of the COVID problem. But now that we're three years in, they've also got to rethink everything <coughs> that happened in that three-year period. So that's even more work in terms of, rewiring their brains and understanding the world through a correct lens. And, you know, that I can understand that fear of having those, you know, having that security taken away from you. I do kind of well, get it. Well, not only that, I come from that. I am that, you know, I, I read my journals with great uh, veracity, you know, voraciousness and leaned on them heavily and admired my, my, you know, my, my peers and colleagues up the food chain who I would turn to, including Anthony Fauci was my hero pretty much my whole career. And now I'm learning that there is an adulteration all the way along. And it's, it's shocking to me. It's shocking. And I still want to believe, I still want to return to my native state, which is uh, something happened to Dr. Fauci for a brief period of time. And now he's going to return to the mean where, where he's always been or the New England Journal of Medicine is going to start to publish data that isn't just going one direction. Seems to be this, I, I'm not, but, but as long as I see the data only going one direction, I know there's a problem. At no time in my the history of my career, reading the medical literature, the data goes back and forth until you sort of reach a consensus and it starts to coalesce around something we call the truth. Now, you, the lead articles go one way. The, the only publication out here that has uh, sometimes started to publish stuff that was unpopular was the Annals of Internal Medicine. And I, I kept the very month that they published it. It was like last spring because it was so different than everything else that everyone had been publishing up to that point where they entertained the possibility that budesonide might have some utility in early COVID. I mean, so you, if you said that before, you would have been condemned as some sort of witch doctor. Uh, are you seeing that in the British journals as well? And are there any that are coming around from your standpoint? And then finally, do you worry that it is the influence of pharmaceutical money or something that is uh, adulterating things? 
Um, yeah, so it's the same in all the journals. I mean, the BMJs had a couple of all right pieces and they have the rapid responses. So you can actually speak relatively freely in debate in a way that isn't filtered. So that that's better than nothing, but it's not it's not what we need. Um, and I think right. if you what's interesting looking at how the journal articles are written is that occasionally you'll get a paper where the results are not what they were expecting and are not supportive of the sort of official worldview. And what you'll see in these papers is that in the abstracts and in the introduction and the discussion, there'll be all this sort of quoting from the scriptures. You know, it'll start off about COVID's killed millions way. of people. They, the they explain it away in, in the in the discussion. Yeah. I see it. I see it all yeah. the time. They're like, uh, you know, oh, it's got to be considered in this context, and this is probably why it's false. And this, uh, they they explain yeah. their own results away rather than just presenting the data. <laughs> Which yeah. again, when I read that stuff, I go, "All right, what's what's going on here? What is going yeah. on?" And so then you might share the data, which is showing something important, and people who don't want to see that will just quote some line from the discussion, saying, "Well, they said it didn't matter." You're like, "Well, I don't care." Right? <laughs> oh my god! I've not spoken to another colleague. Yeah, I've not spoken to another colleague that sees this as clearly as I do. I, I, it's, we we must read a lot of the literature. I read a lot. And, and and I keep my eye on it. I always have. It's just it's just like breathing to me. And uh, and I've noticed exactly this when I, again not annals so much. Annals of internal medicine. God bless them. They, they kind of go back and forth between uh, publishing some interesting things and then just stopping and again going back to the party line. But they don't tend to to explain things away the way the more. Um, the canon does the way New England Journal and the way JAMA, JAMA particularly, it goes way overboard to to explain explain problematic data away. Yeah, and there's I mean, there's all sorts of data that's missing from these studies. Like there, there was one study where you could they plotted the vaccine effectiveness on this graph, and they had a variety of different <laughs> graphs over a long time frame. And at the point where the vaccine effectiveness hits zero and obviously went then below zero, meaning that it was making things mm -hmm. worse. It just removed that part of the line and the peer reviewers let it through. And there were some studies, there was a study on, on the length of menstrual cycles after the vaccine, where the graph was, that was with this paper is just completely unreadable. It's out of focus. And you can see sort of through the blur that there are some women who had were bleeding for months and months on end, right? Which was the story. That was the yeah. story. We don't care what's yeah. happening to the women yeah. that were fine. And it's just in this yeah. blurry graph with no mention of it in the rest of the paper. And so, you know, the peer review process is completely broken. They're not, they're not calling out the missing things. They're not correcting how it's done. They're not actually sort of, you know, making sure that people are sort of doing their best work. I and mean, that's the idea, isn't it? Yeah. That you're, you know, and that's yes, not happening yes. at all. It's just yeah. way, no, we're, we're trying to we're trying to ascend to the truth, which is an impossibility. It's a, it's a it's a process, and I, I've seen a lot of um, <laughs> a lot of minimization. Like uh, X number of young males get myocarditis, which is a very small number, and kind of, it's a, it's only five out of a thousand, and, and it's a very small, very small, very small. Nowhere, and this is the part that jumps out at me. Yes, it's a small number. Now, please, if you wish to point that out, give me the data on how many males of that age have long-term medical consequences from infection with COVID so I can do the risk-reward analysis. Well, of course, the, the data is approaching 
zero for young, healthy males on the COVID side, and one per some th tens of thousands or whatever, of which half in a year have persistent myocarditis. That is breathtaking to me. That is breathtaking that that, that circulation article was not a headline everywhere for every doctor to think about. And to every time they gave a vaccine and every time somebody went to college and was mandated to have the vaccine, that they let their put their school on notice that if I end up with persistent myocardial damage, I will sue the shit out of this institution because the probability of me needing this vaccine is zero. The probability of me protecting somebody else is zero. Why are we doing this? I'll let you comment. Obviously, I know so how you know how I, I feel. I completely agree. That, that <laughs> is how you determine that, you know, whether an, whether an effective vaccine is worth taking. You want to know the risk benefit for that individual. These were not effective vaccines. So that actually, that balance doesn't matter anymore because it's not stopping you getting COVID. So if you're getting COVID anyway, then the risk from COVID is irrelevant to that equation, actually. Um, and the thing that was really, really bad is that the papers who were, which were looking at the myocarditis rates, they needed to report on four rates. They needed to say, well, what was the rate in the uninfected, unvaccinated? What was the rate in right, the infected? Exactly. Yes, and exactly. Infected yeah. and uninfected, vaccinated, and they never ever did that. They never did never it. never get that and, data. Never get that no. data. But but I I would argue I'm willing to concede that what you just said about the efficacy of the vaccine is a debatable point. I'm I'm willing to concede that. What I'm not willing to concede is that the risk to a 20 year old male of COVID is anything other than zero, a healthy male. I'm just, it's just, that's what it is. Uh, no, also, it, there's no debate about whether you're protecting anybody else. You are not. Uh, yeah. But in terms of, I, I'm, I'm interested that you, you pointed out that uh, data about vaccine efficacy going down below zero. That, that is the Austri uh, Austrian data, right? Is that, is that the data you're talking about? Where they showed a... They showed a 70% improvement. This is this was the fourth vaccine. This was the second booster. They showed a 17% improvement in infection rate, which again, we can argue about how they documented that and what they mean by that, number one. And then number two, after six months, it went down below zero, meaning you were more likely to get infected. Is that the data you were talking about? Um, actually, no, the data I was talking about was from just second dose data. This has been going on for ages. It's mm -hmm. the same game played again and again and again. And um, one of the things we noticed really early on in 2021, um, I'm, I didn't mean to be talking about the vaccine so much, but anyway, let's talk about the vaccine. Early in 2021, yeah. we noticed that every country that was rolling out the vaccine was getting a massive surge of covid and we waited and waited and thought, well, you know, maybe this is coincidental because it could have been. And so we'll say, well, which country's next? Is it going to happen there? And it did. And it did. And it did. And it just kept going in that same way with Japan and South Africa being the last to go <coughs> months later. And same story. And in the meantime, at the beginning of 2021, researchers were actually being quite open and honest about what the impact of the vaccines was. And what they were reporting was a 40 percent increase in the infection rate in the first two weeks after vaccination. So there was this risk period after you had the jab before there was any alleged protection. And all of the scientists and all of the public health people were ignoring this two-week period in their calculations. Now, of course, if you are more likely to get infected earlier on, 
then and there's only a certain percentage who are susceptible to any one variant, then all you're doing is making the cases earlier and you can then look later on and you will it will look like you've got had an effective vaccine simply because the people who were going to catch it have already got had it and they're immune now. So you can create this statistical illusion just by ignoring that two-week period. And they've all ignored that two-week period. Sometimes they ignore three weeks. And it didn't just happen after the first dose. It happened after the second dose. It happened after the third dose. And it's, it makes sense that it would happen, right? Because what you're doing is injecting this instruction into the body to make a foreign protein all over the place in many, many cells. And the immune system is very, very busy dealing with that, which makes mm -hmm. you more vulnerable to any infections that are in the air because your, your immune system is not able to do its day job at the same time because it's doing something else. And we know this because we're in that mm. early period as well. Other viral infections are much more likely. So people were getting shingles, they're getting EBV, they're getting CMV. So these are mm. some of those mm. um, viruses are viruses that are dormant in the body. And so you've not the immune system sideways it can't keep these latent viruses at bay and they, they reappear. Mm. So, you know, it, it all kind is of- that, is, that, is that something, is that, I'm, I'm not familiar with that notion uh, in relation to vaccines generally. Is that, the, is that true or is it specific to this vaccine? So I, I wasn't either. I mean, literally we were just looking at the evidence as it was coming out, but obviously then mm. asked that question. And there are papers of, Influenza vaccine doing the same thing in children. So people after influenza vaccines are at much higher risk of other respiratory viral infections. So, you know, overall, your risk of respiratory viral infections gone up, even though influenza mm. might have gone down. Um, so, you know, there mm -hmm. is there is other evidence. But I think these vaccines in particular, are, um, you know, they really give such an enormous hit to the immune system because of the volume of foreign protein that's being made so uh, a couple of things i'm going to take a little break here for a second but um I, I i think it's so interesting that you mentioned the spanish inquisition in relation to these historical moments and and uh, i i keep pointing out you know sort of a simple way of uh, addressing our present behavior as you know the people that silence the people that uh, that uh, do the the what's the word I'm looking for were you science of the people the the stupid censoring. me I can't think of a word but any of what is it censoring censoring about the people the people that do the censoring are never the good guys number one they're never the good guys and if you want the the most uh S clear example of someone who was at his 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 historical moment promoting severe misinformation misinformation that absolutely challenged the nature of reality he was so wrong his name is galileo galilei he was a absolute absolute misinformant daring to say that the earth revolved around the sun which ran against everything including the very nature of reality itself as far as the church certainly was concerned thus the spanish inquisition came and silenced him we all look at that as a good thing now is that that was that, that you want that you, may, you want to be a part of that is that what uh, we think is is a good <laughs> a good way to to uh, participate in our present moment i don't know about that the other thing is um 
you said something about uh, where is this coming from? I forget what that was exactly in relation to uh, what we were talking about just a moment ago. Uh, where is? I, I guess what, it was the. Well, I guess it was the the again the censoring and whatnot of the journals mm -hmm. and where you know where this is all still coming. So oh, let's yeah. let's let's yeah let let's take a little break. Uh, we've got to hear from the people that uh, really support us here. The book is called Expired. I suggest you check it, uh, get it now, Amazon, wherever you get uh, your books. There it is. You can also follow uh, Dr. Craig and her organization at hartgroup.org. I've just signed up myself. And uh, Twitter uh, is forward slash Claire, C-L-A-R-E, correct? Not A-I-R, A-R-E, yep. Craig Path for the pathologist. And we'll be right back after a few minutes here. Hang with us. If you're trying to figure out the right present for someone, you will not go wrong with gifting the most comfortable sheets, clothing, and accessories that your friends and family have ever felt. Of course, I'm talking about Cozy Earth. Cozy Earth has the softest and most comfortable sheets, blankets, towels, PJs, joggers, and more guaranteed. Susan and I love them. In fact, we still have Cozy Earth sheets on our bed. I slept in them last night. I was thinking about how great they were. And look at this. I'm wearing one of their super comfortable t-shirts right now. I don't get, I just can't get enough of Cozy Earth. Their sheets are durable, machine washable, and come with a 10-year warranty against defects. So no surprise that Cozy Earth's brand has been featured on Oprah's Favorite Things for five years in a row. Whether it's their luxury pajamas, super soft bedding, loungewear, or plush bath towels, you will love shopping and gift giving at Cozy Earth. Here's my gift to you this holiday season. Go to CozyEarth.com, enter code DREW to save 40%. That's CozyEarth.com with code DREW. CozyEarth.com, code DREW, save 40%. I think everyone knows the next medical crisis could be just around the corner, whether it comes in the form of another pandemic or something much more routine like a tick bite. You and your family need to be prepared. That's where the wellness company comes in. You know the wellness company. We have their physicians on like Dr. McCullough frequently. The wellness company and their doctors are medical professionals you can trust. And their new medical emergency kits are the gold standard when it comes to keeping you safe and healthy. It's really, it's a safety net. It's an insurance policy yeah, absolutely. that you hope you're not going to need. But if you need it, you sure as heck are going to wish you had it if you need it. Be ready for anything. This medical emergency kit contains an assortment of life-saving medications, including ivermectin, z pack the medical emergency kit provides a guidebook to aid in the safe use of all these life-saving medications. From anthrax to tick bites to COVID-19, the wellness company's medical emergency kit is exactly what you need to have on hand to be prepared. Rest assured, knowing that you have emergency antibiotics, antivirals, and antiparasitics on hand to help you and your family stay safe from whatever life throws at you next. Go to drdrew.com slash TWC. That is drdrew.com forward slash TWC to get 10% off today. Just click on that link. Yes, thank you to our friends at the Wellness Company. Do check them out. There's a lot of stuff at their website in addition to the emergency kit. I'm sorry, Susan? And Cozy Earth, of course, too, which we slept in last night. I love those sheets and uh, I've been looking for my shirt, my T-shirt with them. Uh, on uh, my Dr. bed Craig right now, is too. here with me as uh, see, I, I, they, love I hope you tell them how much I like their stuff. <laughs> um, and I want more t-shirts, please. Uh, Claire Craig is here. Again, uh, heartgroup.org is the, is, and heart is H-A-R-T. She's going to tell us about that in a little while, more about that organization. But but I, I want to get back to something, a couple things you said that I wrote down. And I said I was going to talk about where does this come from, which I will. But 
You also said, I didn't want to talk about vaccines. So before I forget, what did you want to talk about? So the, the book actually doesn't cover vaccines. So the book, um, originally I, I um, decided to write it in 2021 when I had this problem that I could talk to somebody about one particular aspect of what had happened and, and persuade them and, you know, get, sort of they'd understand it. And as they walked away from me, I could sort of hear the cogs turning and you know that, that it didn't fit with everything else and that it would just leave them and you'd be back at square one. And I thought we've got to, you know, we've got to actually have people's concentration span for a period in order to explain this to them because it's, you know, there's a fair amount of complexity in what's happened from the just, you know, just, just even from any one aspect of what's happened. I thought, well, that's a book. So I try, set out there's trying a, there's to There's a name, by the way. There's a name for that phenomenon. I, I don't know if you write about it in the book. I haven't read your book yet, but it's called the backfire effect. At least uh, we, that's how it's characterized in this country. Is, is, yeah, where like, for instance, you can convince somebody that, that, that's an anti-vaxxer that they should be vaccinating their child for measles by going through the evidence very carefully. But when they walk away, they will get the, the, the measles vaccine, but they'll become more powerfully anti-vax against all other vaccines. So there's a backfire effect it's thought of. And, and there's debate about whether that really exists and how it exists. But is that what you're writing about here? Um, so I, I don't write specifically about that, but there is a fair amount of psychology in there because I think you, in order to understand what's happened, you do need to understand how humans behave and think and, and how that was manipulated, actually, and what fear does. You know, I think all of that is really critical to understanding it. So what I also did was take specific beliefs that are quite integral to what how people what people make how people make decisions about how to behave. So those beliefs, things like it's that the disease is only spread through close contact and that asymptomatic mm -hmm. is a thing and that lockdowns work, you know, each mm -hmm. of these beliefs and start with where people were at, right? So start with what, you know, why they believe what they believed and then take them gently through which bits of those were wrong and why people were getting them wrong and sort of come out the other end thinking, Okay, well, maybe that one was, you know, not quite as clear cut as I thought. Let's move on to the next one. So what I really wanted was not to run away because that was the problem we've had, isn't it? That people have become more and more polarized and they can't listen to yeah. each other yeah. because it's foreign right. language. It causes entrenchment. That's been my goal too. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And so it's a challenge. And what happened in the end was I wrote too much because all that explaining <laughs> made too many words so I just pulled the vaccines so I thought well actually you know I've got this book now which talks about lockdowns and masks and the virus and how it spreads without actually being that controversial these days you know that those topics are sort of on the on the table so I'm kind of hoping that's a sort of way in for people you know you can share it with your mum or your auntie or whoever and and I've done that you know I've, I've shared it with people who are scared and we're still scared mm. and they are not scared at the end of reading it. It, it I think if you you I hope you'll publish the um, the vaccine piece of it, but but in that one I think it's a little bit harder sell, a little more complicated too. And and what the backfire literature shows is that, and this is all the persuasion literature as well, which is in order to change somebody's mind it, with these kinds of uh, I always think about flat earthers as the ultimate sort of uh, version of this, you know, in order to say convert a flat earther to understand the world, you, you have to address not just the facts, but 
their worldview and their social context for having that worldview. In other words, if you if I become suddenly a, a skeptical about flat earther, and, I'm, and I don't mean to pick on that population, but if I'm sympathetic to them because I was essentially that when it came to medicine, and I had to address my worldview too. Uh, and, and but if you suddenly you're entrenched in that social environment and you share ideas with people, suddenly those relationships are in jeopardy and you could get condemned by them for having alternative points of view, which is really what happened. Uh, and so like for me, I, I'm still struggling with, like I told you, Dr. Fauci's adulteration, whatever that was, I still don't know what that was, or that pharmaceutical companies really have some sort of control over the, over the publishing uh, over the journals. I, I, I still struggle with that. How do you get people to change their worldview? Yeah, I think, you know, I think we've been helped along a little bit with this because the, the way of what you're describing there is people who want to be part of a group, right? You, you, you want to have that mm -hmm. connection. And the more, as time goes on, our groups are being divided and more and more different planes and more and more different dimensions. And mm -hmm. actually, the end point of that, people have to realize that they won't agree with other people 100% about everything. And so once you've got mm -hmm. to that point, you think, well, I, I don't need to agree with you about absolutely everything in order to have a conversation with you. I don't even agree right. with myself from a few years ago, right? You know, because if you did, right. no scientists. Scientists have to be able to change their right. mind. And so that's yeah. a healthy position to be in is to say, look, it's okay for people to have different viewpoints and for us to learn from each other. And and but it requires a certain amount of self-confidence. And you know, I do hear what you're saying around people wanting to wanting to be surrounded by reinforcement. And, and that partly comes from fear as well. You know, when you're when you're scared, evolutionarily, our brains want us to check whether the fear's the danger's still there. Um, and so, you know, if there is a danger still there, if there's a snake or something, you can just look and decide, well, it's there, it's not there, that's it, that's it, it's over. But when it's a fear of something that's invisible, that becomes really difficult and people end up with, you know, obsessive thinking and intrusive thoughts and, and, it, and it does take over. Um, and, you know, you end up hunting out for the next hit of fear to reassure yourself that you're right to be being afraid. So you're on the news looking at how many cases there were that day or whatever it is that, that's telling you that your fear is justified. Um, and, you know, that's exhausting. And hopefully people are running out of energy for doing that. Um, but, you know, there's always some new fear, isn't there? That's a problem that people can be reignited with other fears about other things. Well, it, it does seem it does seem like there's something about the historical moment that our tendency towards what some have called mass formation or mass hysteria or mob or whatever you want to call it. There's something about our present moment that seems to make the human psyche fertile for that sort of thing. I I, I just I can't imagine humans are always like this. It seems like it's there's something about our our current situation. But do a do you have do you have any theory about that? Well, I, I guess part of the theory is that whole sort of thing about cycles through history that you know we're, humans are probably yeah, most immune to that type of behavior <laughs> when they've just been through it. Unfortunately, yep. you know, you come out yep. the other end. You That's think, well, interesting. I like that. They've been inoculated. It's good. Mm. Yeah.
actually you just reminded me of of this awful thing that happened where um people who were attacking us and um were being mm. paid to i think some of them were also writing articles um about how to do it and there was one article where mm. they talked about this technique called pre-bunking so this pre-bunking idea is that you immunize people's thinking so you take um uh, you know you, you want to project a particular idea truthful or not and you can predict what the other side might say about it and so you take a small part of what might the counter argument would be and sort of poison it you know you just you publish something that's going to make people think oh no that's rubbish i've already seen that little thing so i know i can dismiss that i don't have to do the work and that way they won't engage with the truth it's a guy named Cialdini that uh, wrote a book called Presuasion, and that that's the technique they're they're getting into there. Presuasion, mm. you pre, you know, uh, sort of persuade the individual or make them more likely to be persuaded with some yeah. suggestions. Let's say yeah. the other thing you said that's still ringing in my head is that uh, these moments through history usually stop when there's an outside force that comes in, uh, and unfortunately, I suppose that's true. I mean. Certainly Napoleon was one of the forces that stepped in in France. And I suppose Lenin was one of the forces that stepped in. And I mean, there's all these awful things that happened. I, I want to believe that we're not going to have to go through that to get these things to settle down in our current moment. Is, do you worry about that? Or are you still positive enough that we're, going at, we're getting at it from the ground up quickly enough that there will not be some crazy outside force? Um, no, I am worried about that, actually. You know, I think I think we have sort of lost a grip. And, um, I th you know, I think there are, there are reasons to be concerned. Um, and what we are able to do about it often feels painfully slow, really painfully slow. Mm. Um, mm. But then on mm -hmm. the other hand, you know, there's that sort of metaphor of throwing your pebbles at the dam and it all one day it'll break and it will just go like that. And I think there is something about the sort of exponential nature of the waking up that we st it still feels horizontal, <laughs> but it might turn at any point. Like a hockey stick. Uh, the, um, I want to go back to the lockdown uh, issue that's in the book. Um, I noticed that a friend of mine sent me some data, some uh, testimony from boris johnson where he was like oh, i should have locked down i can't believe what a I bollocks did what a maniac i am for not locking down that seemed to me like backwards movement uh what was that all yeah. about do you agree with me I, yeah we've had a lot of that recently in the uk because we've got our very very expensive very very long-winded covid inquiry going on um, in England, there's actually a parallel one going on in Scotland, which is actually turning up some truths. But the one in England is just solely focused on this idea of it should have been earlier and harder, and it, you know, and and they won't discuss the harm. They won't, you know, it's just ridiculously biased. Um, so yeah, so that keeps getting into the press. This ridiculous story of should have been more, should have been earlier, should have been harder. The reality is that what the modelers were predicting was that everybody would be susceptible. Which is a ludicrous suggestion from the outset. Equally right? susceptible, equally susceptible, yeah. and equally uh, as dangerous for all all age groups. Yeah, yeah, Insane. and all in one wave. You know, not not this idea that okay, we're all susceptible over the course of a decade. It was we're all susceptible now. 
and it's going to spread like yeah. wildfire until everyone has had it and it's going to overwhelm all the services. When, you know, it's not this sort of idea that it was a novel virus. It was a coronavirus. We know about coronaviruses. They are seasonal. They come in surges. They peak and they go away again. And we know about airborne respiratory viruses. We know an awful lot about influenza. And its behavior is slightly odd, but it's very, very well recorded and has been for hundreds of years. And yet they were pretending it was like a measles virus. So with measles, um, the example that's often used is the Faroe Islands, which had a sort of 65-year gap between outbreaks um, so that anyone over the age of 65 on the second outbreak was immune, but everybody else caught it all at once because measles spreads like that. But this is not how respiratory viruses spread because they're ubiquitous. Everybody, they're around, you know, or they fill the air and a proportion of people, around 10%, are susceptible to each wave and that susceptibility rises and falls and then away it goes again. Um, and there were tons of papers on this. You know, this wasn't sort of, this wasn't, like a mystery people had written about for influenza if there was a man-made influenza virus leaked from a lab what would the scenario be and they had plotted out what would happen and their baseline was that between 10 and 15 percent of the population would catch it and that's you know that it was known that is what would have happened anyway based on their crazy assumption of 85 percent of people catching it in the first wave the peak would have been in july and so we were told we were going to squash the sombrero and you know slow the spread, squash the curve, and make the peak later. So the peak had to be later than July 2020, and it was not later. It was all over. It was all over, you know, very very quickly, and it was all over very very quickly because it was spread through the air. So that's why it was everywhere all at once, and why you know it didn't spread through just close contact the way that they were imagining it did. Yeah. Um, Right. People still don't understand that. It's, it's six feet is meaningless. It's more like 60 feet. And probably somebody who walked through your room or whatever a few minutes before, not the person in your proximity. That's or even someone, someone down the road, sick in bed, yep. pumping out virus. Yep. It goes into the air Wind. and it moves through the air. Yep. We yep. saw this with SARS-1. So with the SARS-1 epidemic, there was an outbreak in some Hong Kong apartment blocks. So there were sort of six tall um, apartments in a hexagon shape. And based on the wind currents, somebody predicted that the infection was going to spread from these ground floor apartments up to top apartments in three of the blocks. And that's exactly what happened. You know, it spreads through, it's SARS-WAD. It's basically the same, you know, it's got the same yeah. name for a reason. So yeah. we knew that that yeah. is what would happen. And yet we had to pretend it was all about human behavior and close contact when it never was. And so one of the so things, you know, going back to sort of saying, let's not worry so much or let's admit we can't know about the malign intent, how much of it there was and who it was. What we can know is that huge swathes of persuade, persuasive of people in positions of authority and doctors believed the stuff. So you think, well, why were they yeah. believing? And they believed it because of quite an interesting story, which goes way back, right? So we go way, way back to germ theory and miasma theory to start with. So you've got this sort of miasma theory idea that diseases spread through bad smells and people would carry the sort of smell smelling things to prevent the disease. 
And the gem this theorists- is for, this, this, this is before 1850. This is throughout much of medical history. Yeah. Right. And then in 1850, there was this tipping point where the microscope's invented and they started to say, actually, we think it's germs. And the, the germ theorists were fighting for about 30 years to be heard. And when that happens, when you've got the sort of politicized science, the scientists who are not being heard start to become a bit more extreme in their beliefs because they're shouting louder, they're trying to say, you know, this is really important. And then you, there was a tipping point and people said, okay, you're right. But they brought along with them some beliefs that were not really evidence-based. And they went a bit beyond where the evidence sat. And in 1910, there was an important public health official um, called Charles Shapen in Rhode Island, Providence, Rhode Island. And he was evangelical about germ theory. And specifically, he wanted to rid the world of this idea that you could catch anything through the air. He thought the miasma theory was not just wrong, it was completely wrong. And so even though he admitted that you could find germs in the air, that you know he'd found them, they were there, he came up with some kind of excuse saying, well, these germs were either not enough or they weren't virulent for some reason that he couldn't explain because he just wanted the, the belief that it was close contact to be pushed through. And part of that evangelism came because he was correctly believing that if you separated hospital beds in infectious disease wards, there was less spread of disease on those wards. So there is something about, you know, even with aerosol spread, it's higher dosages if you're near people. So he got that right. But because he knew that, he sort of went so much further to say that there was no such thing as airborne spread. And to be honest, he was a slightly strange man. He had sort of obsessive compulsive disorder. And he describes in his book this fear he has of other people's saliva, how they they lick their finger and then turn the page. And then he has to turn the page and he has to touch you know, handles and things that other people have touched that might have their saliva on them. And he's the one that came up with this idea of mouth spray, he calls it, that will fall within six foot of a person. And so as long as you are six foot away, then you'd be protected from this mouth spray. But it's literally, these were the sort of delusional beliefs of a, a guy with obsessive compulsive disorder. That's where it really originated from. It's not from an evidence base at all. And this, um, I, and to be honest, I don't want to sort of be too hard on the guy because in his book, he also has paragraphs where he says, well, you know, I sort of have done a bit broad brush here. I've made lots of assumptions about lots of diseases behaving in the same way. And of course, we've got to keep investigating and learning and, and there'll be probably be more nuance than I've said. And we, you know, we're over 100 years out. So we can't really blame him because what have we been doing for the last hundred years right. to actually find out more about right. this? Some, and, and there must be something weird in the human psyche that we believe that, that somehow smells are a sign of some, something, you know, and that, and that only spit transmits something. And it's just, we got it all mixed up with the masking. The masking was just so wrong. It just, it, the aerosol, aerosols get through everything. <laughs> they just do. Yeah. And, and yeah. it's not at all clear there was really any body fluid transmission to speak of. You kissed me the morning I had COVID, Susan, and you didn't get it. Shocking, you know, and yet you ran out of the room appropriately and didn't come back. I didn't hear you. I kissed you the night before. No, no, that morning. It's Christmas Eve. All right, <laughs> whatever. The point is, we, we've been just weird, primitive man in terms of how we've been thinking about these things. And again, the odd thing is our colleagues 
uh, glomming on to it. Yes, now things that, are... Now that we know it, there's a three-day incubation period. You really can't catch it until the third day you're sick, right? Well, no, it's a little more complicated than that. But, but be that as it may, things that were... The certitude about everything should be questioned, including yeah, asymptomatic spread and six feet and masking and all these things were just nonsense for the most part. And you know, I've heard you say, Claire, that you were afraid during the early part of this uh, pandemic. I, I was not afraid, but I conceded. I conceded to the government. I said, okay, you're preparing for the worst case scenario. You have a lot of responsibility. I guess I got to concede and be a good citizen. But I looked at the Italian thing and I said, that's not us. That is not the American system. There's something wrong with their system. There's something about the kind of people that are getting sick there that we need to look at. The the Chinese thing looked like total communist propaganda to me. So I was never scared. But you were scared at the beginning. How did you switch no, from, why were you scared? How did you switch from scared to, to not scared? So, um, yeah, I'm quite embarrassed about that, really, because like, even that Chinese propaganda, I completely fell for, for that. I believed it. I thought that people were dropping dead in the street. And... Um, yeah, I guess I was just swept up with the the hype and the the you know it was it was in constant as well, wasn't it? The news was just all the time, um, and I was also checking the news and checking the data every day. And um, I I guess the Diamond Princess stopped me worrying so much about me, but I was still worried about society and the health service and my parents. Mm -hmm. And then um, in the summertime, when things were not going back to normal and it was kind of, you know, over, that wave was over, there was no COVID around and people were still being told to be afraid. And we had, we had posters up my street saying COVID has not gone away. Like, well, it had. <laughs> um, so that, that kind yeah. of got me sort of waking up. And then I guess the, the testing thing was, you know, that was the tipping point for me. But um, and, and, and it meant that I was being introduced to a lot of people like you. So people who had been watching the whole way through and could then show me little things that I had got wrong, like really little things. So things like the body language of the announcements from Boris Johnson, where he's sort of squeezing his knuckles together like he's not actually happy with what he's saying. You know, he's, there's something that I just wasn't picking up on because I was scared. That, but people who were not scared, we're sort of more skeptical in seeing these things. Well, there was this weird phenomenon going on. If you dared to question everything, you were a bad person and wanted to kill grandma. That, that was the craziest thing at all. Or, or at best, you were somebody that was such a profound individualist, you couldn't adjust any, anything, even wear a talisman over your mouth to protect other people. I mean, this was the insanity. It still goes on. Still, still you hear, see stuff like that. And it's, it's just we, we need to fight back and they're, they're tell them to shut the hell up. Let's stop it. It's insulting. Stop it with the yeah, insulting I mean, nonsense. What's that? This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. So what, okay, one of we'll the, take some calls here. Go ahead. Go ahead, Claire. I was just going to say, at medical school, um, when, you're when you go through medical school, obviously you learn a lot of facts. 
but they like to teach you through stories because people learn better through stories. And um, and there are villains in the stories of medical school. And I don't know if your villains were the same as mine, but in my medical school, there was we have um, a, a story of a, a doctor who killed a lot of his patients, right? Harold Shipman. So he's like a really bad doctor. But worse than him mm. was an anti-vax doctor. And worse than that was anyone that spoke out during an epidemic. We were taught this at medical school. You know, if mm. you're stepping out of your lane during an epidemic, you're a danger to the public and you're the worst kind of doctor there is. And so all of my colleagues have been indoctrinated with these beliefs about, you know, these are these are the baddies in medicine and they don't want to be one. Mm. There is there is a whole other line of, I, I, I figured I could talk to you for a couple of hours, a whole other sort of topic, which is what happened to public health and why public health is so distorted and there is just a lot of hammers running around looking for nails, it seems to me. Uh, Josh, go ahead there. Uh, you're uh, on the mic. Hey, Dr. Drew. Hey, man. Um, so the, th the thing with this is I feel like a lot of it has to do with you're asking a question. And the question that seems to be asked is could something have been done differently? And I feel yeah. like that once that once that question is asked, someone has to answer that question. So someone has to say, okay, mm -hmm. this is what could have been done differently. And there doesn't seem to yep. be anyone saying that on the other side. Um, so well, I, I feel I think, like I think you're I think you're framing it, I think you're framing it actually in a very important way. I think I think that's actually and it's actually kind of a clement way of of, of uh, sort of framing things, which is and it's sort of how I felt at the time, which was, my goodness, there's a lot of potential for really serious stuff here. Uh, they, some people are, these guys, how would I feel if I were the governor of a state and I was responsible for 8 million people or whatever? And how, how would I would I prepare for the worst case scenario? I, I, I agree with you. I, I agree. But the, the problem I had, oops, I lost my connection here. Uh, the problem I had was that it went on for two you I noticed you said you sent your kids back to school in September of 2020. We we were locked for two years here in California. Two years. Uh, and that's that that is had profound effect on the well-being and development of young people. Profound. It was speaking of risk reward analysis, and again, it was like highly predictable. I mean, extraordinarily predictable that it would have the effect it has had. And yet they didn't seem to care because all they cared about was this one thing. Yeah. I mean, we did lock down again when all the harms had been measured and, you know, laid out and there were no longer hypotheticals. Um, and so, and yeah, but the, the effects it's had on young people is just appalling. It's really, really appalling. And, the, you know, there are some people only just sort of noticing it now, even people who work with young people who are sort of saying there are some odd, odd things about the emotional immaturity of these cohorts. You're like, yeah, no shit, of course there are. <laughs> right, exactly. You know, kidding. But but you but to to uh, Josh's point now, what what should we have done, or what could we have done, or what might we have done differently? And I, I understand that's you know it's easy to to you know look at be armchair quarterbacking from from the future, but there were people suggesting other ways of doing things, and the ways that were suggested actually, in now retrospect, would have been much better. So yeah. how how can we understand that kind of historical sort of frame? Like, well, what are people supposed to do? 
Which I can think is a good question because it helps us uh, prepare for the next one. Okay, okay. So there was a lot of work done around what you should do. You know, pandemic plans had been written and had been thought about very, very carefully and had been followed in the past with no detrimental effects and were just completely disregarded. So, like, you know, we can write as many plans as we like, but if they want to discard them, they're going to disregard them. And we've got the situation here where our currently head of the UK Health Security Agency, which is our public health body, it's ridiculous name. She is now saying, well, masks don't work and never worked. And at the beginning, she said they mm. don't work and they never worked. And in the middle, she said, you've all got to wear one. You're like, well, what do you do with people like that? You know, that's, that's not what we need. We need people who actually stick to the truth throughout. Um, and so I think it's, a, it's, a, it's only a difficult question because we're talking about not having people in authority who are prepared to do the right thing. That's all that you need. And the right thing includes sticking by the values of our society. The, the, the values were all overturned. You know, we have sort of basic principles around the precautionary principle and first do no harm and informed consent and bodily autonomy and adults protect children, not the other way around. That's all you need to do, just stick to those principles. And then in terms of fear of another pandemic, I mean, the that has been completely hyped up and unnecessarily hyped up because the reality is you've got two scenarios. One scenario is the infection is airborne and you cannot stop it. And it even if it was horrifically deadly, if you cannot stop it, then there's no point trying to. And at the other extreme, you've got close contact transmission. So like gastroenteritis, which is spread through, you know, the fecal-oral route. And we now know exactly what happens with that because we've done the experiment, right? We've locked down. And what happened to gastroenteritis is that it carried on appearing at the the emergency room at about half the rates it was before. So it didn't go away completely. So you can slow the spread. But actually the spread of gastroenteritis is already incredibly slow. And all the modelling that was being used around, you know, close contact transmission, we'd say it would take 14 weeks to get to all the rural areas of our country before peaking. So if you're slowing the spread beyond that, then you're just saying, well, we're going to have months and months and months of disruption for what? So, you know, those those are the two extremes. And in neither case would lockdown make sense. Lockdown doesn't make sense. And besides which, lockdown is harm you are causing harm and you're then responsible for that harm and so you you don't do it you know uh caleb i i sent you a video of the way the media was reporting this uh, in the early days do you have that accessible by any chance the, the uh, kind of parroting of the same sloganeering and nonsense did you just send it to uh, me just now no i sent it a couple uh, earlier in the day but but if, if it's not accessible, we'll bring it up maybe tomorrow or the next day. Because it, it, it's so astonishing when you look at the nonsense that was being repeated by the press with the exact same language, word for word, the same thing by every single person around the clock for months on end, that all of which turned out to be nonsense. And no one, the people are starting to send these videos around. I suggest you look at them. And no one from the media is, is looking at themselves and saying, huh, how did we get to that point? What, it, looks, it looks like somebody sent them their talking points. It's so incredibly 
um, consistent and so absolutely categorically wrong and no one saying why did we do that how did we do that what do we do different next next time nothing like that seems to be going on so uh, that that worries me you reminded me of that moment when Rochelle Walensky describes how she heard about the trial from CNN and got all excited about how brilliant it was you're like hang on a minute you are the CDC director and you're not looking at the evidence. You're not looking at the evidence and making a sound decision based on it. You're listening to CNN and getting excited. Like that's hugely problematic. Yes, yes it is. I I remember that moment. Susan, are you laughing at something or? You hear her laughing. It is hugely problematic. It is hugely problematic. Well, Claire, you did not. Dis- I love her choices of words. I know it's very British and very, <laughs> very, very sounds. We we sound so we sound dumb here by comparison. And again, I see the whole world now is smart and dumb, and, and that's, that's how I, I've, I've just distilled things down to the their basics. They're right and they're wrong. They're smart and they're dumb. That's it. I, I'm getting too too. I got too into the weeds on every every single topic. Uh, okay. Uh, Hang on a second. Uh, I, I want to just respond to something on the Rumble Rants. IED says, Paxlovid Drew p- passes out Paxlovid to his elderly patients like candy. <laughs> no, I do not. No, I do not. I've used a fair bit of it uh, early on about three variants ago when the consequences in elderly patients were not like the Alpha and Delta, but were getting a little more severe. I was having people get quite sick. And it was working remarkably and in that particular phase, I was seeing a little rebound. I used it again last spring when people were having a certain kind of COVID I was seeing, which people were prostrate with high fever. And again, the packs of it worked in six to 12 hours. No rebound in that population. And now I'm not using it at all because this is a upper respiratory infection, respiratory virus. And worse yet... Uh, Pfizer, in its infinite wisdom, has decided to uh, increase the price of Paxlovid to $1,300 per course of treatment, which uh, clearly is not worth the... Some, and by the way, something, Claire, we used to talk about four years ago all the time, which was the cost-benefit analysis, literally cost, literally dollars spent or uh, uh, euros, pounds spent, I don't see any of those conversations anymore about at least not in relation to COVID. It's really odd. That was, that was everything in in every single uh, publication was, well, this looks good, but it's not worth it because of the cost. Absolutely. And the thing is that that's so fundamental to healthcare because, you know, resources are finite. And if you don't, if you're spending on one patient, then you're potentially not spending on another. And I mean, that's exactly what's happened is the money's just, you know, has just been splashed on this and other people with other conditions have been left behind. And furthermore, the economy as a whole has been destroyed. And we know that healthier, wealthier societies are healthier societies, right? So longer term, you've damaged health just by destroying the economy. Of course. And then what we've done with our kids and education and development and social development and mm-hmm. telling them they're going to kill their family if they crawl out of their bedroom. Just unbelievable stuff. But anyway, uh, so I hope you will uh, let us talk to you when you decide to put the vaccine uh, book out or when you're ready to talk about vaccines because uh, there is expired now, which is masks and lockdowns and the early evolution of our excesses and how we did not remain consistent with the values upon which our society is based. And 
I've come to understand that maybe some people don't even understand what that is or did not understand what that was uh, that we have relinquished in the, in the course of this, uh, uh, as uh, Dr. Victory says, debacle. So uh, if we left anything out, is there anything you wanted to address that I missed? So I would just say that in the book, it's um, it covers a whole plethora of subjects. So, you know, it starts off with biology and then there's a little bit of maths thrown in, but there's actually a fair bit of history in there because I think that's how you, you know, that's how we actually get to grips on this is looking at it through a lens of history and understanding the whole trajectory of it. Um, anyway, yeah, I, I would. Uh, yeah. Next time we talk about mobs and vaccines, okay? And you're welcome anytime. Whenever you're ready, whenever you're ready to do about it, to talk about that, I'm ready to go. Uh, again, it is heartgroup.com, Claire Craig Path, C-L-A-R-E, uh, Craig C-R-E-I-G Path on Twitter. And uh, we appreciate uh, the work you've done and thank you for joining us today. Thanks ever so much for having me. Now you get to go to bed. We've, we've kept her up late <laughs> enough, well past midnight in the UK. And uh, coming up for us, we got a lot of interesting things coming up uh, tomorrow. Um, we have Michelle Effendi. We're talking about and Denise Aguilar, who's a someone who um, has a, an amazing life history, and she's uh, now become an advocate. Um, you're going to love that story. Zhao Ying Summer's coming in on the 21st, which is uh, Thursday. Uh, that's going to be early. That'll comedian. Be a comedian. Uh, she is, and Brad Williams, comedian. And Brad Williams also. That'll be early. Miniature size. At noontime. Uh, and then we'll get uh, Dr. Lee Meng Yan back in here and Emily Kaplan, who I think you'll like hearing from uh, next week. A lot of great stuff still coming as we roll into the new year. And coming up in the new year, Sean Baker talking about uh, the uh, meat. Meat, yes, and about uh, the, the excesses of some of the dietary recommendations. Brian Kilmeade agreed to come in on the third. Uh, Jim Brewer on the fourth. Roseanne coming in on the 10th and Dr. Paul Alexander that same week. And I like uh, how your voice gets louder when you say, Roseanne, I I you're did excited. See I'm very excited. So I was on Roseanne's show. We had a good time. I don't know if that's aired yet on her podcast. I think that's coming up. So look for me there. And uh, until then, Susan, thank you. Caleb, thank you. Um, we will No, thank you. No, thank you. We will see you tomorrow's Wednesday. So we're going to be at our three o'clock hour, normal time. Uh, and then again, reminder that Thursday is at noon. So we'll see you tomorrow at 3 o'clock Pacific time. Ask Dr. Drew is produced by Caleb Nation and Susan Pinsky. As a reminder, the discussions here are not a substitute for medical care, diagnosis, or treatment. This show is intended for educational and informational purposes only. I am a licensed physician, but I am not a replacement for your personal doctor, and I am not practicing medicine here. Always remember that our understanding of medicine and science is constantly evolving. Though my opinion is based on the information that is available to me today, some of the contents of this show could be outdated in the future. Be sure to check with trusted resources in case any of the information has been updated since this was published. If you or someone you know is in immediate danger, don't call me, call 911. If you're feeling hopeless or suicidal, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 800-273-8254.